This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Welcome to ASMAC's Luncheon. My name is Kim Richmond. I'm the president of ASMAC. And um, no applause. Let's see how I do. <laughs> We're going to enjoy a, a wonderful talk today and demonstration of some really great music, so I'm glad you all could come. Okay, so our present uh, special guest is uh, not only a wonderful musician, he's a friend of mine, and uh, I've had the very great pleasure of interpreting some of his music, and um, um, he uh, is from Ohio originally. He'll tell you all about his background, but uh, I know of him from coming from New York. He's the pianist with the Conan O'Brien show, and uh, they had a one o'clock call today, so most of them couldn't be here. They would, but uh, he's besides doing that gig and the whole band coming out from New York to, to join Conan out here on the series that they have. Um, he's a wonderful composer. Uh, aside from that, He's written in some wonderful music I've had the pleasure of hearing and playing, and he is, uh, has a new album out that he's going to uh, share with you. So uh, may I introduce Scott Healy. First, let me just say this is just an incredible honor. Uh, I've come to a bunch of these things. Last time I was here, it was Roger Kellaway, who uh, freaked me out in the mid-'80s when I saw him play in New York. And I couldn't believe a musician could be so fluid and so fun on the piano, but also swing so hard. Um, so it's a real honor to be here. And I want to thank Kim and Cher and the whole gang at Catalina. And uh, let's just give them a hand. <clears throat> this is a great, a great group. It's a great thing that we do here in L.A. And I can say we because I feel like I've been here six years and I'm part of the community. Um, I was talking to Kim earlier. Uh, what you know? What, what what I'm going to talk about? You know, I'm going to talk about my background, being from Ohio, from the country, country boy, and back to the city in New York. But uh, I started. We started talking about the difference between New York and L.A. and how the cats in New York had a real hard time with my music, but when I came to L.A., it was it was almost as if it wasn't hard enough. It was like they were the, the, the sight reading and the level of musicianship and the level of emotional support that the players gave me was so, was so much better, and I got much better results right away. And Kim said, you, ha you have to talk about that, so I'm going to talk about that first. Um, I love New York, and I'm not going to put down New York. New York was really good to me. I've, I've, I did hundreds of, of gigs in New York. I did scoring, I did orchestration, I did studio work, I did jingles, I wrote jingles, I played on commercials, uh, I did concert music, and I did pops orchestra, playing the celeste and harp parts for the New Jersey pops, which was one of the funnest things I've ever done. Uh, but when I came, but when I would bring them my crazy hybrid jazz, classical, or whatever it is, my, my music, which I, you know, had this, this, uh, this idea about, I would bring them this stuff, and, and 
you know, you don't necessarily get it the first time, but in order to get it the second time, you have to apply a little bit of, uh, you know, emotion and spirit to it. And I never found, I found that the New York players were a little bit too concerned with, with where they were parking and getting to their Broadway show. You know, no, or no offense, guys, but uh, they didn't really get it. And I, I never really felt like I got a, a, a good reading, especially in the last 10 years that I was there. So uh, the difference to me in New York is not only there are more players out here, I think the players out here are just a little bit more community-oriented. The community is so supportive here. I was able to come here in 2009 with Conan. I, I left all my business contacts back in New York. I only knew about three people in L.A., and I called one of them and said, you know, I want to get a band together, a uh, 10-piece or 11-piece jazz group. And uh, I immediately had a rehearsal going. I started writing again for it. And uh, two years later, I did a record. And then a year later than that, I got a Grammy nomination for a piece on that record, which Kim Richmond played on, by the way. And uh, I, I actually just really credit the LA music community with helping me accomplish all that. So... So what we have here is a very rich and supportive environment for pretty much any music. And Kim also said, well, you have to be good, too. So, you know, you have to give them something to, something they like to play, give them something, you know, that's always been my mantra, is, uh, you know, give the, give the players something that they, they're going to want to, like, dig into, give them something that sounds good, that makes them sound good. And uh, if you're going to take the time to write for a band, you know, think of the players and uh, what they're going to be going through. So anyway, uh, to start off, I'm from Ohio, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I was born, yep, rock and roll. Unfortunately, I missed the rock and roll because I was sort of uh, sequestered. I wasn't in the downtown suburban scene. I wasn't, I wasn't really a rocker. Uh, I was born in Shaker Heights, solidly middle-class family, the most loving and supportive uh, parents, two, two brothers, everyone's healthy, knock on wood, and, uh, you know, wah. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't have the, I don't have the sob story. I, I just have a fairly idyllic childhood. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I, think, uh, you know, the more I realize how, how that really is a, is a major factor in my, you know, emotional and mental health, but also in my success, uh, how, as it is. Um, uh, I was born in Shaker Heights, and I started playing piano when I was about three or four, and I just would play by ear. But what I remember is uh, listening to music um, on the television. That's where I first heard music. And on my dad's records, my dad had, of course, the Herb Albert uh, with Cream and Other Delights, and uh, whatever else was there that everyone else had, plus he had a lot of uh, show tunes and everything. So I, I remember hearing music in the house, and um, my entire family is musical. My grandmother was a piano teacher. My grandfather was a trumpet player back in the 20s for dance bands. Uh, my grandmother was also a flapper. Um, that's the rumor. She would never confirm nor deny that. And uh, both my... All my uh, dad's brothers played, that could all play, uh, and my, both my brothers can play. 
by ear. And I call it uh, casual talent. They've all got this just sort of, oh, yeah, I can play. You know, I can pick up a guitar and I know four chords. I can play by ear. They can sit down at the piano and play. And I was talking to my dad about it the other day, and I just said, do you, do you realize how musical our family is? And he's a businessman. He was a businessman, and, and he's, uh, he's retired now. And um, I said, do you know how casually musical we all were? I mean, you know, we all just, you know, we all sort of did it. You know, everyone's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll play now. Let me play. And uh, he's like, yeah, you're right, you know, but you were so much better, and, you know. I said, I wish, I, I wish we kept that up, had like a family band. They're like, no, we're just sort of into other stuff. And, and uh, you were the one, you know, we wanted to, you know, let you, let you be the one, you know, because I'm the one, I have, I have the ear, I've got the perfect pitch with the, you know, full vision of the music. I can play by, I can play anything I hear. And I could do that when I was three or four years old. So that's, you know, that started setting me apart. And after a while, they just sort of said, okay, let Scott play it. You know, so uh, my uncle was a Dixieland trumpet player, uh, cornet player, and that's the first time I heard live bands. Uh, the first time I heard the blues progression was on Batman, and these things, and you know, it's even though the bass pattern's backwards boogie-woogie, it's still, that sort of stuff gets burned in your brain when you're four years old. And uh, by the time you get to trying playing on piano, you've got the 12-bar blues already. You know, I, I, remember, I remember feeling the, the movement to the four chord and, and the walk down at the end, the cadence, not knowing what it was, but, all, but also assimilating all this stuff. So, you know, as, as a lot of talented kids do, they just, and I'm sure you all had the same experience, you just soak stuff up. You don't know the names of it, but you know what stuff is. So I always think, what is that? You know, what is that? The problem is it took me till, you know, I was 30 years old to really think of what is this? You know, what is, what is the music business? What is music? What is this thing that I've been obsessed with since I was three years old that it's the only thing I can think of all day long unless I'm watching reruns of Breaking Bad like I was last night or, or uh, playing soccer or riding my mountain bike. All I think of, can think about is music. And I'm sure a lot of you have the same, the same sort of plague. It's like a, it's like a great disease, you know. So, um, so I started playing a lot, and I could play by ear, and I would just play everything I heard. Um, by the time I was six, they got me some lessons, and I got a half hour of music theory and a half hour of piano with a grad student at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And he showed me what these things I was hearing were. So this is, oh, that's what this is. That's what this is, an interval, perfect fifth. This is a chord. This is a major triad. This is, I mean, I'm soaking this stuff up. Oh, yeah, treble clef, bass clef. And suddenly I could read music, and I can actually understand theory and chords. And that was when the, just the doors opened, and I could really, you know, I remember just from then until now just, just feeling, this, feeling this ability to com communicate and, and uh, be part of this great, wonderful, wide world of music, which is everywhere and which is you know, the, a, a true universal language. My wife says, uh, you know, you see it like the Matrix. You know, when you're watching when the Matrix, they're watching, uh, they're watching the screen, the one guy's looking at just the code. You know, when I was little, I just used to listen to music and just be able to sort of see everything clearly, like transparently, like you're seeing through seeing through it, um, I wasn't necessarily hearing the emotion 
and the uh, the passion, and that's what I think that I was a little bit of a slow starter, a late starter in that department. Um, and uh, but I also was into a lot of other stuff too, including sports. And uh, by the time we, I was eight years old, my dad got a really good job, but it happened to be outside of Cleveland, so we moved way out into the country. So I was very much isolated from any kind of cultural thing that really wasn't in Shaker Heights either. Um, I went to a very small school. Uh, I went to the elementary school out there for a while. Then I then that was just so bad. My parents uh, sent me to private school, uh, which had very had pretty much no music department. But I was studying uh, piano with a private teacher. And by the time I was 13, uh, I could really I could really sit down and play a lot. And I was always the guy who played piano. I wouldn't say I was a prodigy, as I was not serious about the classical part. I didn't really, um, I wasn't learning repertoire. I was, le I was learning a little bit of repertoire, but, but uh, mainly, uh, long story short, when I was 14, they hooked me up with uh, James Tannenbaum at the Cleveland Institute of Music, who was a young student of uh, Victor Babin who was a student of Artur Schnabel. So I suddenly got immersed in this rich world of legit classical piano. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a concert pianist. That was 14. And then he was, a, he was just starting off and we just started in with Brahms and Chopin and Mozart and, and he taught me all about the right way to play and the right way to play expressively and the touch and uh, I still was playing a little bit of jazz on the side. Let's say in a, in a small private school in the country, you can't really you know, jam with people. I had, a, I had a friend who was a saxophone player and we used to listen to records and uh, you know, try and play stuff off the records. I had a guy who showed me some jazz chords, he showed me E7 sharp nine, I was like, whoa, dude, that's pretty slick. So I started actually writing some stuff for these little combos I was playing in. But I, I really wasn't getting it. I mean, I mean, again, I was technically very advanced, but emotionally very shallow. I, I never, I wasn't really picking. I wasn't picking up on the rock and roll culture that was happening in the uh, mid '70s in Cleveland, which is just the most fruitful period of music. You know, the punk, we had the punk scene starting. We had, you know, new wave music was on the, on the verge of coming out. We had hardcore rock and roll happening remnants of the 60s. I missed all that. I missed all the groove jazz from the 60s. I missed Miles Bitches Brew. I missed, uh, you know, I just, I just wasn't aware of it. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of fault myself for not being as curious as I should have been. I, was, I sort of got into Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock and the easy stuff. Um, you know, <laughs> well, the easy stuff, the accessible stuff. But I was buying records and I was playing in bands. And I was practicing a lot, and I was doing recitals. And uh, um, as far as uh, technical parts of music, uh, besides the piano, there's the whole harmony part, which I had always sort of intuitively known what things are. You know, this chord is this, and this is that. And you know, uh, my knowledge of my bad knowledge of voicings and voice leading, notwithstanding. I think I knew a lot of it intuitively from, like, I picked up a tenor banjo to play with my uncle's Dixieland band. And uh, I actually credit the tenor banjo with teaching me voice leading. 
Um, I don't know if any of you play banjo, but it's the tenor banjo is is tuned. It's tuned uh, low. It's tuned to fifths with a low C and a high A. So the intervals are wider than guitar. Plus, it's played like this, so they're even wider. Mandolin is tuned the same way, but you play it like this to shorten the intervals and to make the fingerings easier. But um, but tenor banjo is played with these giant voicings that are, uh, you know, you'd call them four-part spread voicing. Um, and a lot of the chord solos are two and three note uh, jazz harmony moving. So you're, you're using all kinds of passing diminished chords and inversions to get to the melody note on top and you're not always playing all four notes. A lot of times you're on the neck with three notes up in the neck so you're playing basically uh, keyboard harmony on, you know, if, if, you, if you can hear it, that's when the uh, richness of voice leading really comes into play because you hear things like augmented chords going up and diminished chords passing diminished chords, appoggiatura chords, chords that move from one to another, you've got secondary dominance, all this crazy stuff that you sort of intuitively know from playing chord solos on the tenor banjo. And that's basically what tenor banjo playing is is doing. You're a lot of times you're playing, you know, stuff that is melodic. So again, um, I sort of knew this stuff intuitively, but I didn't really get it. You know, I wouldn't say I got harmony as far as like the 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 heavy jazz harmony. Um, when I first heard Bill Evans, the light went on. And uh, I started actually getting it, and I, you know, I couldn't really uh, play with anybody, but I got a couple books, the John Mahagan piano book, you guys know that? Um, where he outlines all the left-hand voicings, and I learned all those for the piano, and then started doodling around in the right hand playing jazz. So I was suddenly really, really interested in jazz. Um, Meanwhile, I'm writing for my stage band at school, my little school, and uh, I was arranging the music for, there was a four-part vocal ensemble that, that played, and they did, we did pop tunes, and I arranged their, their pop tunes for them. I taught them to it just like by rote, by ear, and I would uh, you know just sing them the parts, and we'd do four or five-part harmony. And also, I wrote for a doo-wop band. You know, this is all stuff that, uh, you know, later skills become very useful when you've already done stuff like that when you're in the studio. Um, my parents did not want me to go to music school. And I knew from the time I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I was just obsessed with music, but I was also playing sports and I was a pretty good student. And both my parents were fairly academic. My mom is not, was a writer and, uh, and a teacher and uh, my dad was an engineer and a businessman and eventually a math teacher. Um, so they wouldn't let me go to music school. They had, you had to go to liberal arts school, major in music. So you know how hard that is and you know how hard it was in the 70s. It was really, there wasn't a lot available. There were no jazz schools that had undergraduate degrees in jazz except University of Miami and I hear Indiana. And um, and I just didn't want to do it. I almost, I almost uh, left. Um, but they talked me into it. Uh, 
they talked me into applying to college. I applied to Eastman, which had a crazy combined major, double major. This was acceptable to them. Major in liberal arts at the University of Rochester, major in music at Eastman. Okay, great, I applied to that. I applied to Oberlin because it was close to home. I guess they figured they could keep their eye on me and I could be a uh, piano major there and get a Bachelor of Arts and not a Bachelor of Music, but still be part of the conservatory. It was sort of a crossover. So I applied to Oberlin as a piano major and I got in. Um, and I applied to Eastman as a, I didn't feel I could make it as a piano major there. I should have. I applied as a theory major and I applied to University of Rochester and I blew my audition as a theory major because I went in there you know, I'm cocky, I know harmony, right? The first thing the guy says to me is, uh, so, uh, Scott, uh, why do you want to teach theory? I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't want to teach theory, I want to be a jazz musician. I want to write and play piano. He's like, well, we don't really do undergraduate jazz here. Uh, let me give you a little ear training test. And I'm like, oh, great, this is my thing, all right? I can, I can hear anything. So he plays chord. He goes, what, what, what do you hear here? I say, I hear A, a flat seven, flat five. You know, he's giving me this trick question. He goes, A flat seven, flat five. Well, that's one way to look at it. But of, but of course, what we call it is a, correct me if I'm wrong, a French augmented six chord because it resolves outward to a G major. I'm like, wow, that's a tritone sub. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, no, 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 you're not really getting this. No, this is... This is a different thing, uh, you know, this guy was the head of the theory department for years. So, you know, bam, rejected at Eastman, bam. I didn't want to go to Oberlin because it was too close to home. You know, the drinking age in New York was 18 and in Ohio was 21. I swear to God, that's why I went to, so that's why I went to University of Rochester. I went to University of Rochester because I wanted to be still close to Eastman. I knew Eastman was the place. They had a graduate jazz program, which was kicking butt um, guys like Alan Vizzuti and uh, Steve Gadd and, and uh, the Mangione brothers. And it was a renowned jazz department, but it was not undergrad. And they also had an intense writing program led by a guy named Ray Wright, who turned out to be my mentor. Um, I didn't know it yet, but all I knew is that I wanted to be close to Eastman. So I enrolled and uh, I went out for the soccer team. And uh, I played one day of, of college ball, <laughs> so <laughs> I can say I played Division Three soccer, and uh, I wanted to take theory, and I, and I took theory at the University of Rochester. I took one class and realized that this is just a waste of time, and my teacher said, why don't you take the placement test at Eastman for theory, because I could take theory. So I took the placement test at Eastman, and I got 100. So it was basically an ear training and uh, not, you know, write, written, a written test. And uh, so they let, they let me into the advanced first year composer's theory class, which was this fast tracked uh, class. And I was, I couldn't play on the soccer team because it was met at the same time five days a week for an hour. And you can't miss any classes. And I go, suddenly I'm in theory class with, uh, the heavyweight composition students at Eastman. And uh, I was just a pig in you know what. Um, 
So they were within two weeks doing full figured bass riding. And we just did, we just did so much that year. And uh, I also got to know these composition students. I was taking the bus down to Eastman, and I got to hear the Eastman ensembles. And I met some of the grad students, a lot of them whom you know, because they all came to L.A., Dave Sloniker, Bevan Manson, uh, later Jeff Beal and Maria Schneider. Um, all these amazing musicians were in the grad department studying uh, composition and uh, also applied music, uh, instrumental music at Eastman. So, uh, but my class was composition, classical composition majors, and they were writing all writing chamber pieces. And I would see what they're doing and be very curious. And I'd written just a little bit. And uh, basically, uh, one day I was in the copy room and I saw... Um, Scott Lindroth, who's now uh, head of the composition department at Yale, I saw him unraveling this giant score on Diazzo. It was on onion skin. He was doing a Diazzo uh, duplication of this beautiful piece, which I still remember. And, and I talked to him, he still remembers playing. It was called Takata. But he had copied it out in you know beautiful pen and ink with a ruler, and I'd never seen professional parts before, and I said, what is that? And he showed me, he showed me his score, he showed me the Diazzo process, he showed me uh, uh, basically what it is to write a major uh, chamber work, and I said, I want to do this. And so I uh, asked my theory teacher, you know, do you think I can, will you give me a recommendation? She said, absolutely. And I went to Samuel Adler, the uh, head of the composition department, and said, I want to be a composition major. I'm in Dr. Borwick's theory class. I'm doing really well. And he goes, Scott, uh, this is interesting. Uh, what have you written? I said, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Um, I've written uh, four or five long piano works. And um, he says, oh, very interesting. Why don't you come and show them to me in three weeks? So I'm like, okay, great. So I, I actually started the process of auditioning at Eastman. Um, and I wrote a piano piece, and he, li he liked it. So I applied, and I got in as a composition major. They let me into the composition department as a second-year sophomore. I was the only one to get in. I was very, very honored and happy to get in. And that was sort of the beginning of everything for me because I started learning what everything is, really. You know, all this stuff that I'd been thinking about, all this stuff, it was all there. From Samuel, I studied with uh, Samuel Adler for a year. He taught me uh, counterpoint and uh, voicing and and how to what were right notes. There are right and wrong notes depending on what you're writing. And he would actually just like take his blue pencil and say, "This should be a B flat." And you know, he's you know, usually right. And you know, we were doing all kinds of stuff. The next year, I studied with Warren Benson, who had a very complicated metric style. We talked about across the bar, we talked about polyrhythms, we talked about interlocking polyrhythms, different layers of, of rhythm. And then my senior year I studied with Joseph Schwantner, who we talked about aleatoric writing, we talked about uh, George Crumb, we talked about, um, he had just won a Pulitzer Prize. We talked about uh, spatial and proportional notation. And he loved Thelonious Monk and he, and he let me talk about jazz and uh, he just turned my head around about rhythm. He talked about pulse and slowing down the pulse and writing without pulse and writing against the pulse and using the pulse of music. And you're going to see something that I wrote where I, I use a lot of this, these techniques, using the pulse of music uh, as a slow signpost and everything happens between the signposts and 
to get the entire band to feel the, these fast rhythms together and these polyrhythms together is what he was able to do. And he sort of, we, we sort of did a lot of that. And I've applied a lot of that to my jazz writing. So, uh, but along the way, I was also studying with Ray Wright and his, his, I was allowed to take electives, much to the dismay of, of Samuel Adler. And uh, by the time I was a junior, we were writing for studio orchestra and I had a piece played for a 56 piece orchestra. Um, and I won a downbeat student writing award for it. And uh, that's when I really started focusing on my jazz writing. Again, much to the dismay of my composition teachers, who I was still writing for. But um, overall, I w I'm going to say that Ray Wright and the entire Eastman experience is why, why I am here today. Uh, I was talking to Billy Childs about, about uh, I was on a panel with him at a, at a podcast. And we're talking about our educational background, and I just did this this entire spiel. I just did this uh, on the podcast. And then he gets on the mic. He goes, "Well, I was on the road with Freddie Hubbard for five years. That's my education." So, <laughs> so that was uh, I didn't have that that option, and and uh, he got a probably a better education than I did. But um, but uh, by the time I got out of Eastman, and I should have stayed for the graduate to get my master's, but I wanted to get to New York and get to work. Uh, uh, Ray got me a recommendation to start writing pops music for the Portland Symphony, and I did that for three years for their summer program. I did a long concert. Uh, the first thing I did with them was uh, uh, backing up a folk band that was appearing with the, with the orchestra. I wrote a, a featured uh, arrangement of Memory from Cats, which, is, which was the number one song had just come out. And I, and I would just do charge for them every summer for three or four years. Um, and that was great. But, you know, the, the, again, the training that I had in school, it was the, the hardest part about doing the Pops Orchestra stuff was copying the parts. It was such a low budget. We really didn't have budget for copying. So that was the hardest thing. Writing was the, was the easy part. Um, Ray taught me how to write clearly, how to write transparently, how to, how to write less how to not to sketch to write to go right to score paper. How to write and transpose score. Uh, I, I'm a very firm believer in writing write down and transpose score, which is very hard when you write on a computer, which I try not to, but I have to. Um, that's a whole other discussion. But anyway, I went to New York, and uh, uh, I would say the biggest difference between New York and then and L.A. then was that. New York was about performing and playing gigs, and LA was about the studio scene and writing. This is this is what I this is what I've surmised. I couldn't make a living writing in New York, even though I was doing arranging and ghost writing, and uh, but I was playing gigs, and I'd always play gigs through uh, through through college, supporting myself. I was playing weddings, and mainly I mainly I started in New Jersey playing weddings, and and. I actually learned a million tunes, and I played with some of the best musicians in the world on these for, for eight years playing weddings in New Jersey. I don't know if any of you have had that experience of being an, an itinerant uh, musician, just going from freelance, freelance job to freelance job outside the studio, uh, playing live, playing with great musicians, playing left-hand bass, because that's the, old, that's the way the old guys did it. Learning how to, play a, how to play an entire set with songs that begin only with A. How to play medleys of songs using only the, the uh, A section. 
or doing the alphabet game where every tune starts with different members of the alphabet or backwards or every tune has a number in it and we're going to do every key and we hold up keys this is B flat this is G and just everyone would just go from key to key and I was just learning all these standards most of which I've forgotten but I was meeting all these great players I ended up on a wedding with Dennis Irwin and Brian Lynch uh, jazz messengers and uh, members of the Mel Lewis Orchestra and uh, just met all these crazy people, all these great people. And I met this uh, guy named Jimmy Vivino, who uh, was playing weddings, and he was doing all kinds of show bands. And uh, he was involved with Max Weinberg in another band, and Max Weinberg uh, was asked to audition for the Conan guy, the Conan, the guy who replaced Letterman. So Max put the band together. Jimmy called the guys he knew from playing weddings, and I swear if I had never played weddings, I would never have gotten the gig on Conan because there were no auditions. There would have been 500 people in line before me. And that's when things really took off for me. Um, but I was also, you know, hesitant to take the job because it was a steady, it was a full-time job. And I was teaching college at the time, half-time at Sarah Lawrence and at the new school. And I was doing a lot of gigs and I was making good money. Um, along the way, I also had gotten uh, national endowment grants, and I was able to do a record with my, my band, which I was always writing for. Um, basically, uh, in my 20s, I was able to support myself playing and writing, which, is, which I, I'm really grateful I was able to do that. But when the Conan thing came along, the whole thing took off to a new level, and I was able to uh, do everything from play with B.B. King and Taj Mahal to uh, leave on Helm, I ended, on, ended up doing big shows with Bruce Springsteen on the Christmas shows, playing in front of 10,000 people, all those great Bruce tunes, which I missed in Cleveland in 1979. I heard a, heard a bootleg of a recording in 1979 from the Cleveland Agora, and I was in town in 1979 at the Cleveland Agora, and I didn't go there. And uh, it was just amazing. Suddenly I'm on stage with him, and I'm playing keyboards, and I'm doing sessions, and I'm, I keep writing. Uh, for some reason, I've always been writing, even though I've been a player. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad I had, because I had a stack of music. And um, I had a band. And uh, sort of everything started to come together, but it also started to fall apart, because I didn't have enough time to do all this stuff, because I was so busy with Conan. And I also was doing all this electronic computer stuff and trying to get into independent films. And I was just going all these different directions. And I had a recording studio in New York and uh, one kid and a wife in an apartment. And I had a country house. And uh, things were just like just going all different directions. I was very uncentered. And so in that respect, um, when Conan announced that he was coming to LA, I was, I was grateful. Um, because I could sort of start again, and that's sort of what I did. I just sort of came here and just started doing a little bit of here, a little bit of there. I still haven't done a big set film date on piano, but I've done one on accordion. And I've done, I, I played on the big short, but I was playing organ. So, you know, <laughs> I got to get in line for that stuff, right? But, you know, I've, I've done a quite, a, quite a bit of recording out here, quite a bit of playing with, with a lot of people, but I've also done quite a bit of writing. And in uh, 2012, I recorded uh, Hudson City Suite, uh, actually 2013, and um, that was with a 10-piece band, and I, and I uh, put a lot of work into it, and uh, 
had a great support from my players. I was able to get a Grammy nomination for one tune, which I'm going to play for you here. And uh, we've just been plugging away since uh, since day one. And it's just been no question, never a question as to what I was going to do. Just just a lifelong obsession with with playing piano and 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 uh, music in general. So let's see what we have time here. Perfect. Any questions or anything? Is there something I didn't cover? Yeah. I had a, well, no, not that, not so much as that, because the composers were like the supermen. They could do everything. They were all these kind of like crazy, you know, geniuses. And, you know, I was like, so I was really sort of behind. So I didn't get a feeling of, of any kind of politics because I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, one kid had written 200 works by the time he was a sophomore. And he's still writing. I mean, I'm Facebook friends with him. This is just a wonderfully supportive environment, except they hated the jazz department, and, you know, they, they really discouraged me from doing that. I was really slumming it. You know, I was an undergrad composition major, but I also, my main goal was to be with, with the jazz department. And that's the same way that Jeff Beale did it, Bevan Manson, Ellen Rowe. They were all undergraduate theory, piano. I think Beale was a, a theory major, then a comp major. It's just sort of hanging out, just sort of a, almost like they're stowing away and then, you know, and then, then ripping into these arranging classes and getting these giant pieces played because that's what we did. We just would put on concerts of studio orchestra music. I, you know, my piece I wrote was, was 10 minutes long. That was longer than anything I wrote for my classical teachers, and they hated that. They hated the, the fact that, that uh, the jazz department had so much pull, and now they embrace it at Eastman. I went and did a concert at Eastman uh, two years ago, which I recorded and put out as a live album. You're going to hear this piece right here is uh, recorded by the Eastman Chamber Jazz Ensemble. Um, now they love it. Jazz is a, is a big moneymaker, but it's also what people want. So there's a wonderful relationship now with jazz. As far as piano players, I don't, I don't have any feeling about that. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, first, I'm going to say Joseph Schwantner, my classical teacher. And George and George Crumb. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, all those kind of like slow pulses with the complicated rhythms. You've played that one, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's the kind of thing that, that comes out of a kind of a legit concept of rhythm improvisatory rhythm um yeah really interesting stuff and uh jazz writing well of course bob brookmeyer uh thad jones was my idol uh gil evans you know i love chicoria's writing i just think he's an amazing composer herbie hancock my favorite jazz composer is wayne shorter um as far as orchestration though it's got it's got to be brookmeyer and thad I was just listening to a new collection of the music of Thomas Mapfumo from uh, from uh, Africa, West African folk folk rock music. I don't know. I listen to everything. I listen to all kinds of stuff. Mostly, I listen to records that friends send me, and I love that. That's my favorite thing. Is listening to other people's friends' music. Yeah. About uh, four years ago, I had the idea. Uh, Actually, I stole Ron Jones's idea. He was doing the Ravel study group, and they were studying uh, Daphne Sinclair in in uh, in full detail with the MIDI mock-up and everything. And I said, 
we need to do this for jazz. So I pitched Ron on it, and uh, he hooked me up with Vitello's and pitched me for that, and I started the Ellington Study Group, and we got one next Friday. Uh, we do a hands-on study of scores, and Del, Del Ingen from the, the Academy of Scoring Arts is underwriting my class, and we've done three of them so far. And the fourth one, yeah. Now I'm gonna play some, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna play a couple pieces with scores, so. Well, you know, I could play you blues, but uh, I, think I'd, I think I'd rather play you my writing. <laughs> um, I got 15 minutes, so let's, uh, let's play excerpts, so yeah. No, no, and, uh, and uh, you know, Kim asked me to give some insight in my career, and I have no idea, I have no freaking idea because I was piecing together stuff from all over the place between doing industrial uh, shows and, and playing weddings in Jersey and writing commercials and arranging strings for commercials and ghostwriting and all that stuff, all that crazy stuff, and then suddenly to get on TV and play with Springsteen and B.B. King. I mean, I just, I have no idea what happened. I was on a path, and I still don't know where I'm going. I never, I was, I mean... It's been a real, str real struggle uh, emotionally, not just between being a player and being a writer, but also between genres, because, you know, I've, I just did an instructional video on Roots Piano, New Orleans blues, Chicago blues, Kansas City blues. I mean, I, kn I, I now know that stuff because I had to learn it for Conan. I didn't know it, but I would never have thought I would have ended up playing with Sun Seals, one of the greatest second-generation blues players, and Hubert Sumlin. I'd recorded with him and toured, um, playing Chicago blues, the real, the real stuff. So I had no idea, no path, and no one could tell me. You know, no one knew, because everyone blazes their own trail. You all did. You've all done that. So who's, who's got a real path? I don't know. So you sort of grab what you can. Okay, anyway, anybody else? Okay, let's listen. This is, a, this is an arrangement of Solitude, which I did uh, probably back in 1995, um, which I finally had played uh, uh, two years ago by the Eastman Chamber Jazz Ensemble. And this does a lot of the stuff with the slow pulse uh, stuff happening from the top down. The reason I picked this tune is because the melody is so slow and simple, I can get a lot of stuff happening underneath, and that was the idea, to sort of burrow under the melody, hang stuff on the melody, that has an emotional arc of its own. So this is like uh, what I call top-down writing. Um, there's a lot of sort of improvisational stuff that's written out with box notation or spatial notation, and it requires quite a bit of concentration because a lot of the instruments are cross-doubled and inter with interlocking rhythms. So let's, we'll, we'll play a little bit of this. So this is Solitude by the uh, Eastman Chamber Jazz Ensemble live in concert. Transpose score, by the way.
are purposely written uh, off so the idea is well it's you can see the you can see the influence of uh, sort of the New York 80s jazz scene which I was kind of in, into the downtown expression you know anti anti rhythmical jazz but it's really interesting to try and write out some of these contemporary rhythms for a jazz band and have them interpreted so I thought this was a fairly successful piece. I want to play you just three things that I thought were very successful for the reason of uh, they fulfill the intent of a composer. So this filled, this fulfilled the intent that I, that I wanted it to sound like it did, and it did. The next one is a major label release by uh, Ricky Martin. Uh, he had a big hit with La Vida Loca. This was supposed to be the big follow-up hit. It's called She Bangs. And you might remember it from 2001. Uh, I did the horn chart on that, and we recorded it with uh, 
full big band on top of what had already been recorded. So I went, I went to the pre-production meeting, and the first thing, I, they played me the track, and I said, holy shit, F-sharp minor, you got to be kidding. I mean, think of the lead trumpet player. So I called my lead trumpet player. I said, do you have your G-sharp? He goes, no problem, man. He's the guy from the Conan Show, Mark Pender. So you're going to hear a lot of high G-sharps and a lot of stuff, high, high concert G. This, this I had to write in a concert score because I just couldn't deal with those changing key signatures with F-sharp minor. I don't even know how you do it. So, all right, this is uh, She Bangs by Rick, 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 Ricky Martin. So I thought that was successful just because I gave them exactly what they wanted. They wanted Ricky Ricardo on acid. Don't worry about the clave, there is none. You know, just write a, just write a crazy big band chart. And the best part they loved was when I went, wow, wow, with the plunger. So, that's, so there's a lesson in there somewhere. So they love that. Okay, the last thing I want to play for you is successful because it got a Grammy nomination for best composition in 2014. Uh, I lost to Claire Fisher. Wah, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> this is from the record Hudson City Suite. It's called Coco on the Boulevard. It's about a dog named Coco. Thank you. 
That's Kim, Ri Kim Richmond on the soprano sax there, all right? That's not an easy part, right? Thank you, everybody. That really, I'm really, really happy to be here today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.